Je vis mes petites aventures, c'est mes petits bails. Mange mes pimbap, écoute du boom bap. Pixel par pixel, je me rappelle de ton visage. Et sur ce son, je te dis au revoir. Et je chante pour toi. Une dernière fois. Welcome, Skanda. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie. How are you doing? Doing pretty good, and I'm happy because um, I, I've been cold all month, and now you are cold like me. <laughs> I, you, you reap what you sow, right? <sighs> yeah, it's kind of freezing even in Cyprus. Who would have thought? Um, I'm pretty happy too, not because I'm an evil sociopath like you who gets off on people's pain, but because today feels like Christmas twice over. Um, I don't know if anyone here listening has seen, but... Today's December 9th, for context, and we have just uh, received two massive presents from Climate Center, which is the Climate Change Committee UK's uh, sixth carbon budget. Massive, massive paper, tells everyone about the road to carbon neutral by 2033 to 2037, if I'm correct, I'm not entirely sure on that. And the second present is the uh, UN IPCC uh, gap, uh, emissions gap report, which uh, I've been waiting for all year, and I'm still waiting for AR6, the, the bigger report. But these two reports are massive. Like They, they really are going to be huge in terms of climate policies. They're going to show the way as to what we should be doing in the next few years um, in terms of the, the actual science behind it. So I'm really, really happy to get through them. And a bit of house cleaning for everyone that is listening. Uh, we'll probably be doing a little kind of live readings um, sort of live stream style on Twitch. You can find us at the Human Odyssey podcast. Um, I'm going to try and set up a thing where we'll be reading through maybe the entire two documents uh, on different occasions. So you can join us for a bit of uh, research and, and, and games. And um, also, we've been saying at the end of every episode, but I would really like to say at the beginning for once, because I'm not sure that many people reach the end of every episode but you can find us on the patreon uh, you can support the show that'll be really good so far with our listener support we've been able to afford things like zoom premium which has really helped uh, we've been able to pay off the hosting fees for the for the podcast so big thank you to everyone for that you can also find us at linktr.ee slash uh podcast for all of our socials and streaming and now our guest of the day the amazing Chloe Miko, who's host and creator of the Burning Case podcast. Thanks for coming. Thanks for joining hey. us. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. How are you today? And can you maybe tell us a little bit about where you are um, for our listeners to kind of get context? Sure. So I am currently in Brussels and I have been most of the year because of the pandemic. Um, I work here, so this is where I usually live. And um, how am I? I have to say, I'm really eager to get a break and to get to the end of the year because it's been a really emotionally draining year and mm -hmm. it's getting harder and harder to focus on anything meaningful, to be honest. I just want to, yeah, bury myself in a couch and read books and just wait it out. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty yeah. much it. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> so for our listeners that may not be... Um, that may not be aware of what who Chloe is or what she does. Um, she's the host, as I said, of The Burning Case, which is a podcast um, for critical conversations about our future on this planet and how policymaking and radical democracy are essential to ensure the future is not only green, but also fair and inclusive. Um, so, so far, you guys have about 
was it six, seven episodes? Yeah, yeah. We've yeah. only launched, I think, in September. And so far we are at episode number six and we'll have two more this year. Mm -hmm. And then we'll take a little bit of a break and then uh, resume next year for season two. Yeah, nice. I, I've really enjoyed the the kind of depth of, of and breadth of the episodes. I mean, just um, for context, again, there's some episodes on things like uh, Corona recovery, um, coronavirus and plastic pollution, lobbying, U.S. elections, um, the common agriculture policy, and uh, even one on uh, fast fashion. Yeah, yeah. I feel like I've learned <laughs> a lot as well. I really appreciate that you guys have guest uh, experts on your, on your episodes. I think it's something that as a podcast we've tried to do, and we've tried to center our brand around that. But I think not enough podcasts appreciate mm. the fact that you should have experts on the yeah. shows to talk about these things. Yeah, no, it's very true. Because do, do you think usually they just talk about these things themselves without being experts and they just address things on their own rather than inviting external people. Yeah. They yeah. like, I, I think like not, not to say that they'd make un unqualified statements, but I, I think it would be hard to really get in deep in, in the depth of these topics without an expert to, yeah. to kind of mm -hmm. engage with. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you, but at the same time, I, I don't know what you've experienced as podcast hosts who get experts on your podcast, but sometimes there are brilliant people in their fields that are, you know, extremely smart, extremely good at what they do, but they're just not really good communicators. I don't know if you yeah. guys have experienced that in the past. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> there's a couple of episodes like, uh, we will not name that come yeah, to mind do not, to do not be any more specific uh, um, yeah there's episodes where we, we hosted them and only afterwards we, we told each other yeah. we were like oh my but, god you know, you know it's a two way process you know it's it's our job to, to crack them open like a nut and <laughs> so we can get the nutritious flesh inside you know yes like, but Sometimes even the nutritious flesh, it's nutritious for you if you're really into that topic. <laughs> but if your audience isn't necessarily, I don't know, super into one specific issue. Yeah. And and some of them just and thankfully we haven't had that, but we've we we've had the risk of having that. And I guess you too. Sometimes there are people, you know, we, we thought about inviting because they were probably really well placed to talk about that issue and then we thought about it and we we're like no because we attended i don't know an event a conference that they were talking at and yeah. they make everyone fall asleep after 10 seconds yeah. <laughs> so, so we not only do we gotta crack it open we gotta like mash it into a paste we gotta like make it palatable i think yeah exactly yeah, and, and you run you run the risk of of turning people off of the topic as a whole like if we yeah. have an episode on like a specific topic and people are you know thinking oh i don't know much about this let me try and, and listen to this a little bit and they hear yeah. a really whiny yeah. like annoying fast <laughs> speaker then they won't really want that will they no no and they'll they'll be completely turned off from that topic and potentially from the broader issue in general you know if if you're talking about politics um or specific aspect of politics and there's someone who's really boring then there's a risk of just turning yeah. people off politics which is not what we want of course so let's get to maybe the the kind of genesis of the burning case can you tell us a little bit about uh maybe well a bit of background about who you are as a person uh, only as much as you want to divulge and you know what made you start the burning case and what made you pick the team or find the sure. team that you have. Sure. So I, okay, to make it 
quick-ish. Um, I don't come from an environmentally sound background or context. I don't have parents that care about these issues or that are very political. Um, and so I was the definition of overconsumption. I was born and I grew up in Paris, so fashion has always been a big part of my life. And yeah, I mean, I used to take the plane every month almost, consume a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started studying uh, law, uh, went to law school. And, but the only thing that was kind of always there was my love for animals and for wildlife, especially. And, you know, there's usually, I don't know about you guys, but for me, there was definitely a tipping point when I started be becoming interested in the environment and in climate. And my tipping point was um, when there was this whole campaign by Greenpeace and WWF about palm oil and how it was destroying the rainforest and how it was affecting, you know, orangutans and, and animals yeah, in the yeah. rainforest in Indonesia. And I felt so shocked and so disgusted. And that was it. That was literally the beginning. And I really went really radical at first. And I guess we all been, been there, you know, I made there. all my... Well, exactly. Well, I made all of my friends um, stop Nutella. I was like really radical. I finished law school because, well, because I was, I was doing it already. So I was like, well, let's finish it at least. And then I, I went on to study a master's of science um, and environmental science and management. So completely different. Nice. Um, and then I went to work for sustainability consultancy in Paris. So I went back to Paris because my master's was in Brussels. And I was convinced that, you know, I could help these big corporations change from the inside and be more sustainable. And after about a year and a half, I realized that, well, not so much, <laughs> no yeah. matter what you do, it's really hard <laughs> to make these really big organizations change from the inside. And so I came back to Brussels, mainly for personal reasons. And one thing led to another, and I, I started working in campaigning, which is kind of what I always wanted to do. And right now I coordinate a coalition of European organizations that are fighting for the right to repair. So against planned obsolescence. Mm -hmm. um, and so we do a lot of, of advocacy work. And then on the sides, I've created a charity that does um, environmental education in high school here in Belgium. And then also on the side, I try to mainstream these issues on Instagram. And mm -hmm. I've seen that there's definitely an interest um, for mainstreaming politics and mainstreaming environmental politics mm -hmm. specifically. Sure. And this is kind of how I came to the idea of the burning case of the podcast, because I realized that there was a lot that I wanted to talk about and Instagram wasn't necessarily the best platform. And there was also an interest from people to understand politics and especially at EU level, because EU level is just this big black hole that nobody <laughs> understands, even if you're in there. And this yeah. is kind of how the podcast came to be. And I've always wanted to, from the beginning, um, the podcast to be a team effort. And I knew there were a lot of people, especially in Brussels, that were active in the Brussels bubble, but who also wanted to communicate differently to people who are not in the bubble. And I just posted on Instagram once, you know, if you'd like to join a volunteer project, to run a podcast. And well, now there's a team of between four and six people depending on yeah. when yeah. so yeah it's exciting yeah no really cool happy i'm happy <laughs> that you started it no um for everyone that's wondering you can follow her on uh, instagram at the green monkey right with an i at the end yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. A great great place to not only uh see what she's up to but also to follow uh along the news and uh get some info about environmental issues but also the the european issues as well um 
I have a question about maybe about the the reason why you focused specifically on European politics, or at least it seems like you're kind of going mm -hmm. more towards it, yeah. but also um, more pointedly about the idea of radical democracy that mm -hmm. you you put into your description of the, the podcast mm -hmm. and kind of run the podcast around. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's our question is kind of what is radical democracy for you? And this is this this is where Jamie and I is kind of training, I guess, as as philosophers from uni <laughs> comes in. But what is the radical democracy for you? And and why do you think it's how do you think you include it and why do you think it's so important? Um, I think the two questions are linked. So why are we focusing mainly on European? Well, first, because this is where I work and where most of the members of the team work. We work at EU level. And so Europe is a really complicated but really beautiful thing at the same time. Um, mm -hmm. I'm a strong believer. I'm a strong critic of Europe as it is now because it was not designed to be inclusive. It was not designed to be transparent. And that is very true, but it has... So much potential and I really do think that a future without Europe is <laughs> I'm not going to be dramatic and say it's not a future worth living um, but it is a sad future for for the future of the world you know because it's it's beautiful what we could achieve with Europe and from an environmental perspective not a lot of people know that in European countries up to 80% of environmental legislation comes from Europe so it's great to do advocacy work and campaigning work at national level. You know, it's, it's, it's essential. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the time, they, the hands of the national leaders are tied by what's happening in Brussels. And not a lot of people yeah. know that. And so over the years, that really gave a lot of room for policies to be developed at EU level. But a lot of lobbying, a lot of non-transparency, non-accountability to happen here in Brussels because no one was looking. And because it's so complicated and because national media don't really make an effort to follow what's happening in Brussels, mm -hmm. then it's kind of like this vicious circle, you know, um, not a lot of accountability, therefore a lot of bad, to not say another word, policies, which leads to people being not interested, which leads to et cetera, et cetera. And so there's really room for a different type of storytelling about Europe, I feel. Um, a storytelling that is not always about pointing the fingers whenever something happens and happens wrong, I would say, in Europe and say, oh, it's because of Brussels, you know, it's what's happening in Brussels. They're doing the bad things for the environment. They're doing the bad things for different things. But I feel like there's an opportunity yet to say a different story and how what Europe could be, but also how people can get involved in politics and policymaking. And this is what, I don't have a big philosophical, political definition of what we mean by radical democracy. To me, it's just as simple as citizens being involved in the political life and being involved in democracy and not just being asked their opinion once every five years when there's a vote or once every six. Or yeah. Something, so, so would you kind of equate it roughly to some sort of more direct democracy sure um and i think we we're seeing a lot of great examples you know i mean i know in the uk you guys have had the 
convention, citizen convention. Um, there was one also in France and the one in France was way bigger. Actually, the, I read an article that was comparing the one in the UK and the one in France. And the one in France, they really, you know, supported it. It was financed. There was, you know, millions. It was actually supported by the president, not just a few yeah. MPs. So it was quite big. And at the moment in France, they're talking about how they can bring these proposals from the people and turn them into law. And it's really complicated because essentially the government is, in, is kind of backing out of all the previous commitments. And so I think for me, this really shows that even that type of uh, more direct democracy, it doesn't really work right now because the system is built in a way that it's not made to provide direct access to politics yeah. and to power to, to citizens. And so I think these initiatives are great, but they're also a good thing to point out what's not working and what we could change. And at EU level, there's really like a lot of opportunities for, for more democracy because essentially at the moment, the way it's built, it's not really democratic. So, so how do we change that then? I mean, I guess it's a big question, I know, but <laughs> if, if, uh, if direct democracy initiatives don't work too well, or if we see that there's issues with democracy at the European level, um, then, you know, is there, have you found an answer personally in, in this kind of quest to, to change Europe and to change nation, well, national I politics? At European level, there's just so, this is going to sound horrible, but there's so much that's going wrong at the moment that I think there's a lot of opportunity to change that into like making it better. I'm not saying it will be perfect, but just to give you an example. So to be simple, the European institutions, it's three main type, three main institutions. It's the European Commission, which is essentially the executive power. So it proposes the law. And then there's the European Parliament, which is people elected by Europeans, like a national parliament. And then there's the European Council, which is where the EU leaders and the EU ministers gather to talk about a specific um, issue. And so for a long time, the parliament, which is people elected, didn't really have a lot of power in that kind of try, try system. I don't know how to say mm -hmm. that in English. Um, it's changed over the past years and the parliament has gained more and more power, but still the, the, the ability to propose a law is the commissions and the commissions only. Yeah. And the commission is made by people who are not elected at all. You know, it's essentially just technocratics and specialists in the European Commission. And still in the balance of powers right now, the European Commission has a lot, a lot of power and it's not open at all. And I remember I went to an event, a panel a while back um, where someone was saying from the audience to the European Commission, you know, you're so untransparent that we have to protest in front of your doors and your walls for you mm -hmm. to listen to us because you're so yeah. detached from reality. And that lady from the commission, she said, no, come on, you can call us anytime. You can send us an email. We'll reply to you. And it's just, it's just not true. It's completely disconnected. Yeah. So making the commission more open, more transparent, I think that would be mm -hmm. a major step and changing its structure would be a great beginning. And then even at the, the level of the parliament, I think there's, well, of course, that's the role of the MEPs, but that's also the role of the national medias. They have completely left Europe aside and they have a responsibility in the fact that most people in Europe have no idea what's happening in Brussels. And then at the level of the council, and then I'll, I'll stop talking about this because it's a bit complicated, but the European Council is, it's called by NGOs, the black box. And that tells you what happens there. It's, 
it's like lobbying meetings and with stuff just to give you an example about the the agriculture that i've learned during one of the episodes of the podcast before every european council on agriculture the president of the council has a one-on-one we one-on-one meeting with the president of copacajeca who which is the lobby of big agriculture in europe mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And nobody knows that. And so all these kind of examples really show... I know it because I learned it on your podcast. Doing. Yay! <laughs> but um, uh, to, yeah, to me, it really shows that, first of all, if it was more transparent mm-hmm. and changing the structure of powers, I think that would already be a huge first step in making the EU more democratic. And then, those, yeah. and then of course, the, like the education and the media working. And so so do you propose that we change that through the ballot box? Oh, that's a that's actually a really good question. Um, it, I guess it applies to everything. It's the question of can you change a system that is responsible for, you know, what is going wrong, or do you need to tear down the system and build a new one from the ground up? Yeah. And I don't have an answer to that. I think we need a new system, but I think until we have this new system, we need to keep working to change the one that we currently have. And I don't think it's completely incompatible. You know, you can criticize something and still work to change it but when you have the opportunity then you focus on just creating setting up a new system but right now i feel like if we say i'm I'm not going to get involved until the system changes then you're not going to get anything done for quite a while yeah yeah i don't know what you guys think on that but i i wonder what your thoughts are on citizenship education because to me that seems to be of essential importance, not only in making citizens more politically knowledgeable and politically literate, um, you know, able to engage with uh, certain policy issues, but it, it's it's also the sense that it makes people more politically engaged. It makes people want to engage with politics more. Mm-hmm. So perhaps that could be a starting point as well. But what if the system that teaches about these civic duties only limits that education to things like the ballot box. And so at the end of the day, you are being politically educated, but towards an education that prioritizes your efforts going towards just voting rather than getting involved at a deeper level or getting involved to change a system. I completely agree with both of you. <laughs> um, I, I think the first step would, would just be citizenship education in whatever form you know you want it to be because you don't have that so with the green seats project which is a charity i created we were going into schools and we were raising awareness about environmental Mm. issues and let me tell you that right now in belgium and might get hate for saying that but there is no level of political knowledge whatsoever and i'm not even talking about european level i'm not even talking about elections it's just there's no knowledge of how it works and there's a lot of polarization even between young students Mm -hmm. and i think this is extremely scary and unfortunately the way school is set up here in belgium it's really hard for teachers to take the time to talk about these issues and to take the time to just do anything more than the official program but it is scary because there's no political awareness whatsoever and it's even in these levels, I feel like the populist kind of ideas are really spreading. Like they're all mm-hmm. bad guys and, you know, it doesn't really, 
matter if we get involved into politics or if we even go to vote, though in Belgium it's mandatory, because it's not going to change anything because they're all the same. And yeah. this is really spreading. And I used to think that it was more like a 60 plus kind of, kind of yeah. uh, type of thoughts. But in the young generation, it's really, really mainstream. And that is extremely scary. And I completely agree. I think the lack of citizenship education has a huge role to play in that polarization of students, of young people in general. Yeah, I can relate yeah. back to my own my own education in Belgium and how how little civic education we have. Yeah. Also, uh, I remember my first time voting and in the last elections, whichever they were, because God <laughs> knows Belgian democracy is anything yeah. but simple. No. It's, I always tell people it's the most democratic place on earth, but that becomes a burden at some point because yeah. when you're able to when you have to choose between lists of candidates and and divide votes by you know head of list or, or member yeah. of the list it's just you know you've gone a bit too far yeah that <laughs> sounds great to me <laughs> not well yeah of course because your your system in the uk is just horrible yeah. it's like do i vote for the tree or the should rose? i vote for uh, this or this that's what, it. what's it called again like the first past first past the post first yeah, yeah. The post. Mm. Yeah, not good. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no. Let's not look to the UK for an example of anything. Um, but um, <laughs> it's true. just alienated half of our listeners. <laughs> um, but no, I, I really relate to, to what you're saying about Belgium and about other countries. I've lived in France a little bit, mm. and you know, I had to face the same issues there. Um, but I think that I think what what's giving me hope personally, is that I'm seeing more and more people being um, being disheartened by voting. Uh, but that's, that sounds very negative, but let me elaborate. I'm, I'm actually hopeful because I'm seeing a lot of my friends and stuff look at voting and think, you know, where you said like, oh, it doesn't help and stuff. But then they keep voting, but they go further and they understand that voting is one bit of democracy, that that the idea of a democracy is not just you go once every four or five years to the ballot box and you put your vote in and that's it. Then you like log out of the chat room. No, mm. you go, you do your duty of voting, you vote for whoever you think will do best. But then during the time outside of that, you work with community organizations, with community leaders, with NGOs, with national, international organizations to better your community in very direct real ways and i think that's the heart of democracy it's not the voting every now and then that's important but the heart of it is really being able to work with your fellow citizens towards common goals through community organizing and i think that changes a lot of people's lives like big shout out to acorn uk for example um, great organization that does a lot of work to help people who can't pay rent and who mm. are face evictions and stuff these kind of guys help um a lot of people with their lives but that doesn't have anything to do with the ballot box no i i completely agree with what you're saying but i want to say who are your friends they sound cool first of all <laughs> um <laughs> but like how do cool. they <laughs> how do they get to that because i think to me this is key you know because i look at my friends and we've had the same education and the vast majority of them and god knows i love them but <laughs> um <laughs> They just, no, this, this is never going to cross their minds. Mm -hmm. Just being politically active for them is already equaling ra being radical. 
Um, yeah. And we all know how a lot of the population um, thinks I, about I think, people I think it's radical. finding an issue, finding that one issue you care for more than more than sitting on your couch. Like that's that's what it comes down to for me. And I've seen a lot of friends care about not much or just kind of think about politics and finding one of those issues like housing, for example, or um, union rights and just going from zero to a hundred over weeks or months just because they were, I know they fell in love with this one issue. Yeah, but I think then, and that's my personal point of view, you need a political environment that is either leftist or neutral. Because yeah, I was going to say, there's my... no conservative friends of mine that do this. Well, that's the thing. I have conservative friends. I grew up in quite a conservative way. I went to private school at first, um, and then I went to a public school, but I was in a quiet well, not quite, a very privileged area of Paris. Um, and yeah, my friends are <laughs> conservative. I mean, they were raised in the conservative environments and most but of them like, have never But they're like, when you say friends, you mean like 50, 60 year olds, right? No, I mean like actual <laughs> friends. I like them, them are really good what? friends. And we have, well, but, we have- But that doesn't exist. <laughs> it does, I promise you it does. And the thing is, I, I used to, when I was in my like super radical phase, and I think maybe some people might relate. I was angry at everyone. Literally, I was angry at everyone. I was, I would seriously get into a fight with someone in the bar that would not say no to a plastic straw. I would get angry at people who were flying, who were like not trying to reduce their meat consumption. I was angry at my mom, like all the time. <laughs> we would get into arguments all the time. And at some point, and I think, I could have stayed longer in that phase if I was really surrounded by people who thought the way I did at that point. But because I wasn't, I realized that I was kind of really alienating a lot of my, well, just my social life, essentially. And that I wasn't really happy anymore. I was angry all the time. And, you know, anger is good. I am still angry, but I'm a little bit less angry or not. I'm not angry at the same people. That's the way I would put it. And realizing that individual change isn't going to save the world, for me, that was a huge revelation. Yeah. And, that's, and, re, and I read about that. You know, I had no idea. At first, I thought that veganism would save the world, not flying would save the world, and blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. And then, you know, like reading about the fact that 100 companies are responsible for 71% of greenhouse gas emissions, and that it's a whole system that is in place, and that is upheld by a certain type mm-hmm. of people. It's, like that was a true revelation for me because it allowed me to connect back to essentially my social life and my happiness. And that wasn't easy, but I realized that the reason I was friends with these people in the first place, there was a reason, you know, we might not agree politically, but yeah. it's because they're hilarious. It's because we have a really good time because I don't know, we watch the same shows or we watch the same films. We grew up together. We, they're super loyal you know, and there's like qualities in everyone that maybe they don't agree with you politically. And maybe honestly, some of their opinions are really, really shitty, but I love them for other reasons. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge revelation for me. And it allowed me to connect back to all these people who, yeah, sure. We don't talk politics that much. And for me, it's really hard as a really engaged political person or really yeah. politically engaged person. It's really, really complicated for me to well, not say anything when we're on holidays and just yeah. let it go. It's it's killing me. Yeah. But I realize that if I still want to maintain this friendship, and I do, because once again, for other reasons, I love them. I have to. 
you know, and mm-hmm. they're going to change if they're going to change. And all mm-hmm. I can do is bring it up once in a while and, and, you know, try to slowly change their mind and it's working for some of them, but I can't make them change from one day to the next. And I don't want to lose them. It's like the epiphany that, um, someone with different political views can be a nice person. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, not all Nazis, you know, it's, it's, it's fine. Not all of them, no. <laughs> no, um, but I think this is why, this is why in order to, to, you know, be politically engaged, even at grassroots level, you need that environment that is either, either yeah. leftist or neutral. And it, I think it's, you can, of course, if you grew up in a conservative environment, let's not lie, but yeah. you need to be a little bit more open on your own yeah. um, and be willing to do the extra thing yourself. Yeah, Otherwise, sure. you're not gonna. Yeah, I, th- I, I th- think. I, I think that's a, that rev- type of revelation is a huge difference between. Um, and I, I've been wanting to do an episode on this specifically, but we'll, we'll do that another time. Um, it's the big difference between people I see online more and more, who are you know the type to alienate everyone who doesn't hold the specific political belief that they have, yeah. and at the same time say things like it's not my job to educate you or things like that, you know? Um, I think the atmosphere on the internet's a bit different though. Like there's not much responsibility. Yeah. But you'd be surprised how many of those people are actually like that in real life. And the difference Mm. between that and people who understand that if you alienate every single person who's has different views to you, you'll be all you all on your own because, you know, even if Jamie and I agree on, on a lot of things as if we talk for, you know, several hours in a row about different topics i'm sure we'll find differences and i don't want to alienate jamie after all you know <laughs> so I, I think it's you won't like sure. me when i'm alienated <laughs> i think it's very Can british people to, be alienated <laughs> what do you mean <laughs> no i was talking because i have a lot of my colleagues are british and sometimes they're just too polite to say that they're oh, okay they're like, oh, they're like, oh sorry like I, there must be some misunderstanding i'm sorry <laughs> Um, I just have one more question before we'll head into our little uh, game Me too. of Me too. animal sounds. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, maybe we can both put both of them out there. And we'll say at the same time. Okay. Yes. Okay. One, one two, three. <laughs> no, um, mine is very quick and, and easy. Um, do you feel anything close or related to what you would call climate fatigue or political fatigue? Um, and I know this sounds a bit shitty some people to say it like that because i know some in the world a lot in the world are suffering from actually suffering physically and, and mentally psychologically emotionally from all of these effects um in person they're affecting them right now and we're kind of in our little fortress europe but you know it's still i think a valid thing to talk about to think about is i i felt it a little bit and i've seen people around me feeling it do you feel any of that kind of fatigue about you know, constantly thinking and talking about climate change and, and politics. Uh, Jamie, I was waiting for your question to, as well. <laughs> Jamie! <laughs> Wait, you want both at the same time? Yeah, sure. Just say it and then I'll, 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 yeah, I'll try to answer my best. Okay. It's not, it's not that related, but all right, I'll go ahead. Um, <laughs> so um, just, just back to the issue of citizenship ed- education for a, uh, one minute um so it's it's like you said to so some of your friends uh being political thinking or talking about politics is 
or rather being active in politics is quite a radical thing to them. I feel like many states have this sort of a similar reaction to the idea of citizenship education. Um, in the UK, I believe, um, the Conservative Party kind of minimalized the scope of citizenship education uh, because it was deemed to be too ideological. And I, I feel like that's a strong uh, concern for many states considering uh, implementing citizen, citizenship education. Um, I'm wondering, is that a legitimate concern? Like, not, I mean, can, can you really have citizenship education without some sort of like, you know? Political. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, like when I do, if you, you can say the term ideology and that's just so vague, <laughs> but you can, you can but just like, hear Zizek without, in the background. With, <laughs> <laughs> without, without like specifically like, adhering to any sort of particular philosophy mm. on economic policy or you know distributive mm. justice or anything can you sort of have a no is it possible to have a non-ideological citizenship education you know perhaps just yeah. basic comprehension when reading policy you know and just debates perhaps i'm not sure okay uh, i'll answer the first question and would you agree as a synonym to what you were referring to would you agree to use eco-anxiety yeah uh okay. well um not so i wasn't so much talking about eco-anxiety as i was talking about the fatigue that comes with activism. working and, and activism and, yeah, and kind okay. of thinking constantly about yeah. it um yeah it's exhausting <laughs> um <laughs> yeah. it's i think it's and i'm not gonna say that I am special or anything, but I think it's particularly exhausting to be working so close to power and to decision making because you see on a daily basis what's happening. Um, and it's so just frustrating to see how the decision making process happens and the little games that are involved in the different votes and the influence of, of, um, in the industry and i feel like you're trying to kind of yell and be like look this is happening and this is terrible and yet you're just like kind of screaming in a emptiness um mm -hmm. and just to give you an example we had a win a big win in the european parliament about two weeks ago uh, and we won a vote by two votes <laughs> so that was mm. like super super tight and i was so happy like I can't remember the last time. I mean, it's been a sh sh shitty year. Um, yeah, you can let, swear, it's okay. Let's face it. But <laughs> no sponsors <it's>, yet. <laughs> but um, um, like particularly, I felt like it was, it was just getting, it was just becoming too much, you know, because before that we had a voting committee because that's how it happens in the parliament. And the voting committee, the conservatives and the liberals, of course, completely watered down every important measures, but completely. Mm. And then there was this vote in the plenary and we were kind of putting all our hopes on, on the vote in plenary. And we did a lot of hard work before reaching out the individual MEPs and explaining. And when we, we didn't win anything, but when the MEPs voted in favor of the amendments that we were supporting, it was really incredible. And I was, I celebrated for really a really long time because the rest of the time it's just, yeah, it's super frustrating. I, I think that's the word, it's, it's the frustration and seeing how it's taking place. And going back to what we were saying before, it's the frustration of not seeing anything move, but still having to work with that system. Because for us, because we're trying to influence the law specifically at European level, because this is where 
these types of laws are being developed. There's no alternative. We can't focus our efforts on national advocacy. We do a little bit of national advocacy, but it's not as huge as the efforts that we um, put on the European level. So it's really frustrating to see that system and seeing all its flaws, but still having to work with it. So yes, definitely a lot of fatigue. And yeah. this is why I can't wait for the end of the year. And this is why sometimes mm -hmm. all I want to do is literally just buy a farm and get a lot of adopted dogs. And yeah, <laughs> just like, <laughs> so that's it. I want to work it here Earth. first, folks. Chloe Miko calling for the, for the revolution. <laughs> She's tired of our system. <laughs> no, but and I know this sounds typical, like urban 20 something bullshit you know but it's true like i really do think that we need um i don't know the, the word in english but in um in in french we say exode urbain which means you know yeah, a lot of people urban from the countryside. exactly yeah. and a lot of the writers i've been reading Excuse. are saying that we need an exodus but the other way around from cities yeah. back to yeah. the countryside mm -hmm. and more people working the land and more people um you know growing their own food and i mm -hmm. think sometimes this is from a mental health perspective, this is this would be good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. The second thing is, I completely agree with you. I think it's very complicated, um, and I think this is why a lot of countries haven't really put anything into place. And in Belgium, for instance, there's this class which is called citoyenneté, which is, mm -hmm. if you translate it literally, it means citizenship. And this is where we usually did the interventions because this is a class that a lot of teachers have no idea what to do with because it's called citizenship, but they're not really allowed to talk about politics in it. So they've got this like one hour a week for seven years and they don't know how to fill it. So sometimes they speak about Shrek. religion. Well, exactly. Like some of them just <laughs> just put movies. Some of them invite people from the uh, outside. I think yeah. we like look. We learned how to do taxes or something. Like I was like twelve. Which honestly really? is really useful. I wish. Yeah, I, I wish I, I used. I wish yeah, I well, I don't remember it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it's really tricky for them, uh, indeed. But I think even the basis of how a system works just that not getting into the complexities but just how who do you vote for what are the different level of powers and which decisions are taken at which level of power that would already be quite something mm -hmm. because you mentioned belgium for instance earlier belgium is one of the most complicated political system in the world i remember when i was yeah. studying law my consti constitutional law teacher said to me that belgium had the most complicated constitutional system um and there's so many different levels of powers and because it's like it's, seven environment ministers or something don't we exactly and people don't know who's taking which decision on what and that creates a lot of issues of course and if you ever want to do advocacy not even because you're political but because you care about an issue if you find out who you're supposed to be talking to Honestly, you're, you're good because I would never be able to figure out if I need to talk to my bourgmestre, if I need to talk to my minister or at which level. So I think even that basic level of understanding would have a lot of impact. And then, of course, it's up to the teachers based on how much they know their students to kind of steer it one way or another. And just a final word, um, you don't necessarily need to actively be political there are for instance here in belgium i met this guy who created a play to talk mm -hmm. about capitalism mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. to okay. to the youth and 
of course the play is leaning towards one side of the political spectrum <laughs> but imagine. because it's <laughs> but because it's done in such a way that is it is fun and engaging and it's not actively telling people you need to vote a certain way yeah, it really like, talks about a system it's not, it's, so it's, not it's not patronizing no no yeah. and it's really good and it explains a lot of things and usually and this is what <laughs> i'm going to end on i promise but usually the thing is students will ask the question the right questions themselves so mm. you don't even need to come with every you know answers and, and talk about what's wrong with the system just giving you an example when i did the um, interventions in fashion and fast fashion mainly i there was always questions about yeah but why does the system work in a certain way why did we send our production of clothes to the other side of the world and why are we overproducing and not selling that much and all of these questions they're like kind of a path to well, talking about our economic and political system right mm -hmm. and whenever we would get into these deeper discussions I guarantee you that 100% of the time the teachers wouldn't stop me. They would just kind of let it flow because they knew that the kids had these these questions and they couldn't always be answered by the teachers because of yeah. all the roles um, inside the school. So I think having external people and maybe through different types of interventions, so either play or more arts or stuff like this, this is also a good option. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Uh, well, we're, I guess we're going to head to the game for now and then come back to a few questions um, after. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should be, because on the left, we have James Blondie Rolls Walls. What did you say? <laughs> you say Blondie Rolls? <laughs> yeah, like John Rawls. You know, it's your favorite philosopher, or one of them. It's not true. <laughs> You're a you Rawls. Like, roll, I thought you meant like Rolls of hair. Like oh, no, 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 or... no. You're, you're, you consider yourself a Rawlsian, no? Uh, no. No, I thought you no, did. Oh. No, that was a few months ago, Skander. Ah, oh, shit. Okay, I've got to keep up. <laughs> Sorry, I've got to keep up with Jamie's philosophy. Um, he is currently 2-1-0. Two, two victories, one <laughs> sort of draw, <laughs> and one and zero loss. Sorry. And on the right, we have the challenger, Chloe Burning Case, oh. Miko... All right, I'm so excited to see if You're Jamie can keep down. his. <laughs> I'm so I'm excited to see if Jamie can keep his score because so far you, I mean, he kind of because um, what's his name? Uh, Thomas who just doesn't got a draw. Yeah, he, he said, said he said he was fine with the victory. And I said Orca. So it's true. You he are gave kind it to me. He conceded. So. He what kind of so noise and Orca? I'm counting it? on you to break his hundred percent correct. No. Uh, streak you're counting on the I, wrong person <laughs> <laughs> i want to hear him just scream I this i need i need to win i need to. <laughs> so if you see in the chat i've sent you the link um and we'll start with chloe and then go to jamie uh you get one guess each and after both of you guess um every turn basically uh, i will give a little hints and hopefully we don't stay on this for an hour because we've got more questions I'm so confused by the noise. Like, I, I'm not sure what animal it is. <laughs> Every sound. Oh, yeah. Big thank you again to the uh, Museum für Naturkunde from uh, Berlin, because they are the ones with a huge database of animal sounds, um, calls and, and duetting <laughs> and such. All right, Chloe, first guess. I'm going to say donkey. Ooh, that's a hit and miss. 
Shit. Well, I can hear like water splashing in the background. Um, oh. And it 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 sounds like a large creature because it's got quite a deep voice. Um, so I'm thinking uh, a, a walrus. A walrus. <laughs> this is gonna be really funny when you actually know what this is. Um, I'm no. guessing that's a no. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, no. Um, it isn't a walrus, and it uh, it is definitely not a. Um, sorry, what did you say, Chloe? Again, a, a donkey. A donkey. Yes. Sorry, not a donkey either. Uh, uh, she so, meant water donkey. <laughs> okay. So this animal comes from Chile, um, specifically this type but you'll be able to find it um, in a lot of different places. It's about 50 to 70 centimeters tall. Um, and it's basically black and white. A zebra? We all know, we all um, know how, how... No, no, it's not a zebra. Oh, I, I, I swore it was like... No, I no, swore no, no. it was that as I was... 70 centimeters tall, guys. Uh, zebra, zebras are pretty big. How much is uh, yeah, that? It's like... How much is that? That's half that, my size. I mean, wait, yeah. Wait, <laughs> wait, I'm six, so I'm six foot. So like, what do we? What do we? Maybe you're about? like a, you're like a meter eighty five ish ish, and that's seventy centimeters. Um, where is it? It's like, all right, quick, quick, like come by on, the come beach on, or something. Um. A, uh, he always does this. He takes his time, but then he comes out with the right answer instantly for some reason. A, a, a hippo. <laughs> what? Hippo. <laughs> hippo. I said black and white and oh, yeah, seventy centimeters. <laughs> oh, that's it. Oh, you gotta cut okay. that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not cutting that. Oh, everyone can laugh along uh, with you, obviously, not at you. Next tip. This animal is a mammal and it eats fish. So think of a, a pretty like, I don't know, like some, something like a, as big as a you know, 10 year old child, child, black and white, eats fish. Nothing. Oh, oh yes. Oh, oh. Okay, I want to say something, but then I'm going to give you a clue and I don't want to do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Trust your heart. But I don't say know it. because this, this is like it's a family and it has so many. So, oh. I, 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 I just need a, I need like the basic animal. It's a, it's an animal. It's the name of an animal that you could find in like a children's book. It's not like a super precise species. A penguin. Yes, it's a penguin. No. <laughs> <laughs> he has lost. Yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> a hippo. A fucking hippo. <laughs> No, because there's so many like subspecies. There's like the the yeah. emperor, the big one, and then there's those really small ones. That's true. That's true. Um, well, this one specifically is the Humboldt penguin. Yeah, and because Living Chile, if you go south, yeah. Chile yeah, has yeah. the like the Ring of Fire, so it's actually mm -hmm. it's cold in Chile. It's not just hot. This yeah. is all wrong. Chile has like five different biomes basically. Yeah. This, should, this shouldn't be happening. <laughs> Well, it's a, so it's a migrant, migrating uh, penguin species that lives no, normally in Chile, um, 
in the uh, Pinguino de Humboldt National Reserve in the north of Chile, actually. Uh, although a lot of its habitat is uh, in Peru. Uh, it's a beautiful little species and it sounds really weird, as you, as you can tell. Yep. Uh, and it's m about 32,000 species of them only. Um, so right now they are in the first stage of threatened um, conservation status. And I think they are moving towards the second stage of threatened. So, you know, big, uh, all of our thoughts and prayers with the humble penguins, but also our actions. We also should uh, push our MEPs and such to, to do better. So, Jamie, I'm sorry. I must, uh, I must concede, Chloe. You have you have won my place as co-host of the Human Odyssey. Um, oh no! So that makes into, it guest team one. Jamie, yeah, Jamie, you're you're now at you're now at. Uh, it's fine. All that matters is if I'm above fifty percent. That's all that matters now. My standards have gone. Oh wait, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can go back next week and, and kick him down a notch again. Honestly, I'm sure you would have gotten it if I got if I relipped, if I had yeah. got it wrong this time. I'm sure. No thanks would. to myself though. <laughs> That's how I won most of the times. This is the other person basically told me. Yeah. So Chloe, back to uh, the questions a little bit, and then we'll let you go because um, we were we're going short on time, but. I had a big question that you might have to think about this very, very hard and very long, and it might stress you out. And I'm sorry if it causes you any, any hardship, but what was your favorite episode of the burning case? <laughs> um, easy. No, I'm kidding. Oh, uh, uh, two of them. Can I say two of them? Or just one? I don't make the rules, Chloe. <laughs> no, of course you can. Go for it. Um, uh, for, hold on. Four, six. Okay, so the one I loved the most was the one, was the one about lobbying. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like in a lot of people's minds, lobbying is this, you know, like crazy thing and you 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 just like pass money under the table to someone and then you got to vote or you just invite them to like a luxury yeah. hotel and no, but it, it's not like that it's it's actually much worse and much more interesting and being here in brussels like you have no idea how many lobbies there are and most of the time they don't call themselves lobby of course they call themselves like interest yeah. groups or public yeah. affairs yeah. firm or you know all these kind of things which essentially means lobby um and this one was great because we had someone from the, the, an organization called Corporate Europe Observatory, which is doing an incredible mm -hmm. job in investigating the lobby. Um, Lala Hakuma, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. And then we had Alberto Alemano, who is this personal hero of mine. Um, he's, he's a pretty smart guy. <laughs> no, he's a really smart guy. He's <laughs> yeah. like an EU law teacher. He's involved in like a lot of organizations. But mainly he created this organization which is called the Good Lobby. And the Good Lobby is essentially working to empower citizens to become citizen lobbyists. And yeah, it, this is really inspiring and really interesting. And then the second favorite one was the one on the CAP, so the Common Agricultural Policy, because mm -hmm. we recorded it like very last minute, just after the vote. And we had this first guest who works at BirdLife Europe, which is an environmental NGO, and she explained so well what the CAP is about and why the current vote means that any ambitions in climate are essentially bullshit if we have the CAP. And then we had Adelaide Charlier, who's a Belgian youth activist and who did the whole campaign to 
vote this cap down and now she did the um, withdraw this cap alongside mm. Greta, alongside Anuna and other youth activists in Europe. Mm. And it was, it was really great because essentially they had just lost a really important vote, but they were so hopeful and they were so, I don't know, just sharing about their passion and mm. it was it was a great episode yeah and i'm really looking forward to your next one which we are currently recording which is about the lack of diversity in politics and how this influences the policies mm. that are being developed yeah this one's going to be a good this one one's great yeah yeah is <laughs> yeah. that the final one for the season well we're actually thinking about having it as the first one of season two because Ooh. one of our guests yeah i know exciting right um but because one of our guests can't record until the new year um so yeah. we'll see but yeah this is a really important one because brussels is so white it's ridiculous yeah. It's, mm -hmm. so yeah 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 I, I think we we see that a lot um in terms of diversity of, of ideas and, and opinions yeah um with how how few there are really like may I, I keep thinking that the same the same shit comes out of of Europe constantly and in and not just Europe but national governments a lot of the time too and bit by bit I've noticed that it's because there's that lack of diversity and not just racial but you know there's there's lack of diversity in terms of race gender sex in terms of even in terms of like political spectrum I mean I know yeah. that sounds bizarre to say but there is there is a lack of of people who who are in different kind of different parts of the political yeah. spectrum than just what's mainstream to be there and challenge the the votes and the, and the speeches in the houses of parliament and in the the government um in the government offices where yeah. it's really useful and effective and just to give you an example it's not just the the actual politicians that are not diverse it's actually all these organizations including the ones i'm working at that are supposed to influence this legislation so all the lobbies of course so the bad guys but also all the environmental human rights ngos that are yeah extremely white we did a little investigation before recording this podcast and 90 to 100 percent of all these ngo staff is white hmm. and it's really interesting because at the end of the day they are talking about topics that a lot of them will never ever experience as not being mm. part of marginalized communities and inc yeah. this includes climate change you know they will never be able to talk about climate change as someone who has experienced it firsthand and i think this is really incredibly wrong um so yeah i'm really looking forward to that episode yeah. to yeah, be it's honest. like seeing all these all these uh conventions online conventions or, or like what do you call them um Ah, what's the word for it? Um, you have special like webinars and things like that on topics like um, you know a coronavirus in in Africa, and then yep. there's just five white guys <laughs> yep. from like UK, America, and Germany yeah. just talking about how yeah. Africa needs to get its act together. <laughs> yeah, it's so silly. It's it's laughable, and people call it out now, which is a good thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's this thing at EU level, which is called the EU panel watch, that does this exactly. Whenever really? there's a panel, they just go like, <laughs> "You okay, guys, yeah. it's just like male, white male, and this is not mm -hmm. okay." Yeah, and and to be honest, I think we have to be fair and say that you know if if someone who is male and white uh, decides to you know be super interested in like africa and specific african 
politics and things like that there's nothing wrong with that and and you know that should even be encouraged it's it's a great thing to to be uh passionate about another country and to even want to become an expert on it sure but i think the the people who create these panels who invite you know only these kind of people um are the ones that should have the the fingers pointed at a little bit more because they're the the people who accept being guests you know they they don't really get to choose who other what other guests are they do get to choose whether they get to come on and talk about this topic or if they want to let someone else speak on it but yeah but i think that's also the responsibility of the panelists like because for for so long there's been this kind of complacency of like i'm invited to a panel this is you know kind of a little bit of an ego boost and when you think about climate for instance there's just well so many more people that are not necessarily more qualified but that are experiencing climate way more than a lot of us are and i think this is Mm -hmm. not only the role of the organizations who are organizing things to say well we want a panel that is diverse including people who are on the front line of climate change if the panel is about climate change for instance but it's also up to the panelists to now say and ask the, the tough questions you know and say well I might be interested in, in, in coming to this panel. Can you tell me the percentage of women on this panel? Can you tell me the percentage mm-hmm. of women, of, of, women of, color, of person of colors, of color? Um, because if, if these questions are not asked and we still go and we're like, well, it's not really our fault, you know, yeah. not a lot is going to change if these, because a lot of the times no, these I, organizations I that, that mm-hmm. organize this panel, they've been doing it for ages and they're not really, you know, up to, date a lot of the time with everything that's happening with all the, the, the importance of this that ran by all the people who are not really yeah aware i would say or woke or whatever you want to call that and it's uh, i think it's up to the panelists as well it's it's a shared responsibility to me mm-hmm. well, I, I agree that yeah you should probably it's true if you're invited to a panel it is your responsibility to look into the panel itself that's true mm-hmm. i hadn't thought about, about that um i so on the topic of diversity uh i i was really wondering how you feel as a podcast host about diversity of uh, and inclusion because i th- it's something that i've thought about a lot ever since we created the podcast ever since we launched i've been thinking really hard about you know how many women do we have on the podcast are we not just like interviewing a bunch of dudes and are we making sure that these people come not just from england and and the U- and you know the us and are not just white and and so to have really like that diversity um and i have to say i've personally like you know from one podcast host to another i i've found that really difficult because in science uh there aren't that many women and there aren't that many people of color it's really really difficult sometimes because i i send out hundreds of emails i mean you know we're we try to be quite prolific with our episodes um we have like one a week so we try and kind of talk to anyone because we're interested in everything that's what this podcast is about you know we have an episode on deforestation in romania and then the next day we talk to climate reparations uh, or uh, cartels in in mexico and climate policy like uh, all these things for us they're super interesting but that means sending out hundreds and hundreds of emails that's the work you don't people don't see in the background however uh, it's really hard sometimes for me like i i go to, for example, University of Amsterdam, to their science faculty, and I look through the staff and what their research is. 
and I see maybe, you know, two, three people of color out of 50, 60, or yeah. I see like, you know, less than a fourth or a fifth of women. So if out of every hundred emails that I send to people, I get maybe two or three answers. Um, mm. And if I, if that happens, then I have to spend a lot of extra time looking for women or for people of color, for minorities and such. And it's not a terrible thing. It's just, it showed me, I think, how little they, yeah. there are in science and in politics and, and in these areas. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think for us, it was very, very important um, from the beginning to, <laughs> well, honestly, actually, when you look at the episode, we actually don't have that many men. But <laughs> that's, I guess, it's, it's also because in politics and especially in the EU bubble, the, I feel like the mic is generally given to men and I guess mm -hmm. subconsciously I wanted to give it up to as much as possible to women. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll see we actually have, I think, three, no, two guests that are men so far out of six episodes mm -hmm. where we usually have two to three guests per episode. Um, and I, for us also, it was about sometimes changing the perspective so if we wanted to talk about a topic um, and I don't know, we wanted to have like an MEP, for instance, and most of the MEPs that were talking on this were white men, then mm. we would change the perspective and try to talk to an NGO that was working on this or an activist or to really right. try to make sure as much as possible that we had diversity on the podcast. Um, so, yeah, sometimes we may have a set idea of the type of people we want to talk to, you know, like a politician or an NGO or a scientist or an activist. And when we realize that it might not be possible to either have a woman or have a person of color, um, then we don't hesitate to kind of switch and rethink our approach and try to reach out to someone who kind of fits our values more. And I'm not saying once again, that we will never interview a white man because we have in the past. It's just that when possible, we try to hand out the mic to people who are not white men and who get most of the visibility nowadays and i and i agree with you but like for instance we've only we've mainly seen it for the politics side and we're lucky enough that in brussels at least there's more and more women in the european parliament but i can't even imagine for you because in science as you said it's even worse and we haven't really looked for scientists in the past but i can only imagine how hard it must be for you yeah yeah, a, a lot of them, I think in the physical sciences, like, you know, in the physics, chemistry, biology, all that of climate change, uh, I see a little bit more than in the social science side, which surprised yeah. me. I thought it would be the opposite personally. Yeah, yeah same. My personal experiences at uni and stuff. Um, but it's it's been the ones that we did have on were absolutely amazing. Like we were really lucky to have people like Joanna Haig, who's uh, an IPCC lead author, um, or uh, Carola Rackete last, uh, last week's episode, which was uh, a bucket list for, for me, because uh, I absolutely love her. She's, she's one of the people that kind of, that, well, indirectly, obviously, got me into uh, refugee issues. Mm. Um, so having her on the podcast was, was amazing. But she told us herself, you know, that she would prefer not to talk about things like the refugee crisis because she would prefer to hand the mic to someone who yeah. has either lived that experience or is an expert from one of those countries or something like that. So instead, we talked to her about her specific expertise. And I, I think yeah. 
I think that's more something that people need to do rather than have people extrapolate all the yeah. time. Yeah, it's, exactly. Uh, yeah. It's an important skill. Um, Jamie, any, any other questions? Mm, <laughs> might go down the rabbit hole. Oh no. <laughs> no, I think, I think it's okay. No, I, cause I, I have one more, but go ahead. If, uh, I have, I have one final one. No, good. No? Okay. Okay. Um, we we've we've heard some pretty crazy things from from our guests sometimes i was wondering if there's anything that you heard from your guests or that you've been told or something like that that, that really like shocked you that you thought was quite striking not shocked but um I guess a good reminder was, well, yesterday I talked to someone for the podcast about, for the episode about diversity. And I remember I was asking her if the fact that the political world and the NGO are mainly white was because of the, 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 um, the roots of Europe, you know, being a past colonial power. And I, I, yeah, I mean, we're always learning. And she, she said past, no. Europe is, is still acting, you know, as a colonial power today. <laughs> yeah. And it hit me because when she said that, it was like, yeah, it makes so much, so much sense. You know, we talk about neo, neo, colon, oh, I can't neo colonialism. Anyway. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wrote essays on this. So I, I, I love it. <laughs> like it, it's, it's like, to me, it comes on naturally in French. Um, yeah. And yeah. And, and, but we, we, I guess the neo, in the front makes us forget that we're still talking about a form of colonialism you know and so when she said that it was just so obvious and i was like right and i felt i felt kind of dumb for a second um to even have phrased the question that way and then i realized you know we're always learning not just as podcast hosts talking to a bunch of different people but just as individuals and especially on you know this issue of anti-racism and and the lack of diversity in politics and it's just something that of course a lot of us as white people would have not experienced and so it's so important that we keep learning about these things to understand that to better understand i guess the system that we have benefited from for such a long time and this is something that i kept talking about during the episode is the fact that i benefit from this NGO system that is overwhelmingly white but I'm starting to realize that there's something deeply wrong with this and this is why I wanted to kind of do this episode to also raise awareness in this NGO community that doesn't really ask itself the right question because there's no one actually poking because it's overwhelmingly white and people kind of are like happy with it and they've learned to live with it and this is a massive problem and so yeah when she said that it was just like a oh yeah it was so obvious and i was like well yeah. that makes so much one, sense one of my favorite essays i'd ever written for uni was um uh one called uh france afrique uh mm -hmm. which was basically analyzing the ways that france is still um very much a colonial power and yeah if a, a lot a lot of people really do not know and, and myself included before i i had to research this um just not aware of how outright colonial some of the things that we still do in places like africa are i yeah. mean like people sometimes think ah nah come on it's just a euphemism like you're just you're just saying neocolonial because you want to you know strike a chord but um i really recommend um kwame nakrumah uh, he's one of the people that coined ne the word neocolonialism actually um he's a great writer he 
he had a, an article on it, a book, sorry, ages ago, called Neocolonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism. Mm-hmm. And it's a really, really good read. Um, even though I think Jean-Paul Sartre actually was the first one to coin neocolonialism, the first person. Uh, but Did he? Yeah, really enough. Um, but there's a lot of crazy things that France still does. Like, for example, um, France still controls uh, a dozen or so African countries through the central African franc, which is a, a common yeah. currency. And the funds uh, have to, a lot of these countries are forced by colonial accords from back uh, before they got their independence to keep a really high percentage of their money in France's coffers mm-hmm. and they can't have access to it. It's just there to like, mm-hmm. you know, to be safe or something. Yeah. But France can invest it how they want. And then actually France uses that, uh, the interest of that, to claim back money when it sends money to those African countries as mm-hmm. aid. So yeah. they'll, they'll send them a, a bit less money than normal and say, and say, oh, but look, you got money through interest by putting it in our bank, yeah. uh, which is just silly. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I guess yeah. it's the same with every former colonial power, you know, in, in, in Belgium, it's, it's probably the same as well. And you just... Mm-hmm. The, the way that Belgium has, you know, hosted former um, Congolese presidents and, and just, I mean, it's, it's all so linked and it's covered and the, you know, collaboration and, and tradition and the history that links both our countries. But deep down, it's just so wrong at so many levels. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. But yeah, I, and typically I think this is something that the Belgian um, education system is starting to investigate how they can bring this up in the uh, schools program because at the moment it's not it's not really i mean it's addressed as in like slavery and all these kind of things but it's not really addressed the deep links between yeah. um belgium and and what used to be the the belgian congo yeah we don't so, in france for example when i was in school no one told me oh by the way um if uh let's say uh niger for example finds uh, new ore deposits of, of copper, mm. uh, France gets first claim rights to it. <laughs> you yeah. know, because then a student would ask, well, why? Why? <laughs> and, oh, because yeah. they signed this paper under duress to get their independence and it said so. Yeah. <laughs> it's just very silly. But um, hopefully we have an episode on that, actually. I think that would be, yeah. be really interesting. It's it's a, a topical topic. Um, yeah. I, I think we're going to end it now uh but bef- just before we do that there's a, a new little segment that i want to try which is just a, a very um neat nice little book recommendation uh so i saw on your on your insta chloe that you've been reading or that at least you set out to read a few different books including so many. Uh, zach exley's <laughs> uh rules for revolutionaries and um i read zach that one is, actually yeah zach yeah. is a great guy i met him in, in serbia uh on the on the bender no just, no at a, at a conference <laughs> a, a, a dm25 conference he was speaking there um great great dude a lot of good ideas um but yeah i was wondering if you had a book recommendation i think for me for this episode i guess neocolonialism by uh by uh Nkrima, uh kwame and that's n-k-r-u-m-a-h i think um what about you chloe <laughs> so many uh oh no, not the one I'm currently reading. Um, Utopia for, rea- for Realists. 
Um, and I keep Roger. Mm, what's his name again? Yeah, um, uh, Rut Rutger. No. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah, something like this. And I haven't finished it, but just the part where he talks about how we have completely stopped dreaming of a better society, essentially, because mm -hmm. we've have all the material comforts that we could kind of ever hope to have, and that this has led us to stop considering utopias when literally human humanity has been built on utopia and on people yeah. dreaming of a better world at a time where it felt completely well utopian and unrealistic and this is only how we've gotten where we've gotten and i think this was yeah this was really interesting because i think we we forget to dream because we feel like we're never gonna get anything else than we what we have now and i think it's a good reminder that we need to dream more yeah very good yeah i that's been on my reading list for ages uh so for everyone that's uh, utopia for realists by rutger bregman um, yeah yeah the case that's for universal basic income open borders and a 15-hour work week yeah cool title jamie <laughs> book recommendation of the week well i might have something if uh if you told me about this segment <laughs> <laughs> i know <clears throat> got to um <laughs> So we were talking about citizenship education and there's a book called Whose Government Is It? And that goes into detail case studies on citizenship education. It goes into theory um, about its, uh, its uh, <clears throat> like practical benefits. So if you're, if you're interested in um, citizenship education, uh, I would read that. Nice. All right. Also, cool. also read Gramsci as well. <laughs> yeah, Antonio Gramsci. Um, I'm adding it to the to my own list actually, and I think I'm gonna upkeep a little um, a little list of books of all everyone's recommendations of our guests' recommendations and and Jamie and I's weekly recommendations um, on our Patreon, uh, probably for free, just because uh, I need somewhere to put it. And, this is uh, my current like be. reading list. I don't know if you can see it, but ugh, no, no, just a little bit to the uh, side. Oh, 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 yeah, <clears throat> wait, yeah, wait, wait. and so. I mean, there's, there's just so many different things and a lot of them are in yeah. French, but it's, this shows like how many books I still have to read. It's, yeah. I don't have time. I, I don't know if you guys are able to find time, but it's I, just... I'm carrying around six books in my suitcase just thinking, yeah, I'll be able to read those. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. This is why Christmas break with no work is going to be great. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh, if you're looking for a French book, Economie 2 um, is amazing about a company that went properly net zero and and nice. helps other companies to do so it's, it's really really amazing cool enough about books thank you so much chloe miko well thank everyone you everyone thank you in case podcast uh once more please go and check them out thank you um, for ruining my streak <laughs> mm, i'm sorry about that <laughs> i'm sure you'll gonna... get it right next time <laughs> do you have any anything to plug chloe i mean you can maybe tell everyone where to find the podcast or your your links yeah. that sort of thing Sure. Um, so the podcast is on Twitter and Instagram at the Burning Case Podcast, and it's mm -hmm. also on Spotify and Apple Podcast. And that's it, essentially. <laughs> that's right. pretty much yeah. it. Um, and yeah, with Instagram, we're trying to talk about a lot of different things, including the topics that we are addressing in the different episodes, but also political news in general. So if you are interested in this kind of thing, feel free to follow us. Really cool. All right. Well, uh, I just followed on Insta on and on not on Insta, sorry, on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So everyone go and do the same. Chloe, thank you so much. 
We'll see you around. Thank you, boys.